You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 147. On today's show, stage manager Kat Landry and Theater Art Life founder Anna Robb interview the provost of Baruch College, Linda Essig. They discuss Linda's most recent book, Creative Infrastructures, Artists, Money, and Entrepreneurial Action. Linda makes a case that all artists are entrepreneurs and reminds us to make sure our income is greater than our expenses. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You are listening to Artistic Finance, where we help creatives learn about the business of show business. Before we get to the interview, I want to mention that lighting designers may recognize Linda Essig, and that's because they have written three books on lighting, notably Lighting and the Design Idea, which is a textbook that several of our listeners have probably read. I also want to mention that this is another Theater Art Life takeover, so what you hear after this introduction is the episode that was created by Theater Art Life and ran on their podcast a couple weeks ago. And now, here's the interview. So if you're not having fun doing it, you know, find something else. I ran off and joined the circus. It's kind of what I think of as my career. That is my job. That's my personal mission as an academic leader and academic administrator. And when I can see that happening, that's my favorite thing. Hello and welcome to the Theater Art Life podcast sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom is the leader in voice communications since 1968 for theater and the performing arts. When the show must go on, ClearCom is there to keep the team on cue. The Theater Art Live podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Kat Landry. And my name is Anna Robb. In these next few episodes, we are recording in collaboration with my fellow podcaster and now friend Ethan from Artistic Finance. Today, we're talking with Linda Essig. Linda Essig, MFA, PhD, and former lighting designer, was appointed Baruch College's Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs on July 1, 2021. She previously served as Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at California State University, Los Angeles, where she was responsible for nine academic departments, four centers, and the Ronald H. Silverman Fine Arts Gallery. Prior to Cal State LA, Dr. Essig was Director of Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Programs for the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts at Arizona State University and Founding Director of its School of Theater and Film. She also served as Chair of the Department of Theater and Drama and Director of University Theater at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Essig has authored four books and numerous articles and book chapters, on both arts entrepreneurship and theatrical lighting design. Her most recent book, published in 2022, is Creative Infrastructures, Artist, Money, and Entrepreneurial Action. Hello, Linda. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Now, Linda, welcome to the show. Before we get into what we really want to talk about is your new book, but before that, I'd like to ask you how you got into uh, lighting design originally. Lighting design, well, that goes back to like high school, which was a long time ago. I won't say how long. I was not cast in the high school play and said, okay, I'll take care of the lighting instead and got totally hooked. I think I was like 14 years old at the time. Um, and started doing that. And I was an intern at a professional theater while I was in high school and, and then went right from there to NYU to study design. So it started really young. Um, and then over time evolved. And now I do other things. Was engaged with lighting design pretty much from the early to mid 80s through um, 2008 was when I designed my last show. And when you, when you, after you finished, what made you decide to finish doing the completion of lighting design and move on to other things? That's a big transition, right? Um, it's a big transition, but it was a long, slow and gradual one. So, uh, and, and it was something I've done throughout my professional career, which is think about what kind of impact I want to have and what kind of work I want to make. And I did that for quite some time as a lighting designer, but then became interested in other things ways of, um, other ways of being creative. And that included being creative in my role as a professor or in my role as an academic leader in program building. And then also became very interested in, uh, organizational behavior in, um, in entrepreneurship and decided to focus my, my intellectual and creative energy there rather than in lighting design. A lot, it's interesting that you say entrepreneurship because a lot of people don't think of the arts and in the industry with entre- entrepreneurship as the same in the same realm often. So tell me how how you see uh, entrepreneurship in the arts and how important is that? Well, that's what I, that's that's what I've been doing for the last I don't know fifteen years, is, well, maybe not quite that long, twelve years, is explaining that to people, right? So what that connection is, it's really about creating something of value and then connecting it with its audience. And that's what entrepreneurs do. And that's what, that's what artists do. So whether it's as a lighting designer, as a photographer, as a visual artist, you know, you, you, you have to bundle resources together. You have to take creative risks and then put your work out into the world. Um, and that's, that is entrepreneurship. And that's really what the the new book is about. And what would you say the, steps between going from artist who doesn't think of themselves as an entrepreneur to being an artist who does think of themselves as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's an interesting question the way you phrased it, because you said think of themselves as an entrepreneur. So Mm -hmm. artists may be behaving in entrepreneurial ways, whether they're thinking they are or not. And many artists will um, reject the title entrepreneur for personal or even political reasons, but that doesn't change the the nature of their work, which is to create something new and put it out in the world, which is an entrepreneurial action. So not all artists will think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Um, and in writing Creative Infrastructures, I interviewed 15 or so artists who, some of whom would identify as entrepreneurs and some who would say, well, no, I don't use that title and I reject it for, for this reason or that reason. And then the, in the course of the conversation, it's, well, I guess what I'm doing is entrepreneurship because what they're doing is, is creating something new and innovative and, and getting it out to, uh, to 
uh, an audience. And so in your um, sort of academic work, is this where you realised this this niche or this uh, aspect that needed to be explained to people as they grew up through the industry? Well, I really I started working on this around 2004, 2005. I was relatively new at ASU and ASU is beginning to launch uh, its entrepreneurship at ASU uh, project through a grant from the Kauffman Foundation. And I, um, as I like to say, I accidentally on purpose ran into ASU's president, Michael Crow in the hall uh, outside of, of an event. And I said, how can, how can the, the school of theater and film be part of this? You know, we have ideas and he put me in touch with the person who was leading that effort. And we became part of this overarching entrepreneurship at ASU project in 2005 um, through a program that at the time was called uh, the Performing Arts Venture Experience or PAVE. It did evolve over time to include all of the arts and it changed its name to just PAVE, not Performing Arts Venture Experience. So uh, at that time, 2005, this is, keep in mind, before the Great Recession, it was a lot of actually explaining how um, artists at that time, especially theater artists, but any artist, could kind of harness the knowledge base of uh, business entrepreneurship to help promote their work. Once the Great Recession hit in 2008, I think arts training programs across the country looked at themselves and said, oh, we also have to teach our students to be in the economy, however you want to phrase that, but but we have to not only teach our students to be artists and to be creators and creative people who have an impact that way, but also teach them how to sustain their lives, right? And to sustain their lives, they have to understand how to make money from their art. And if they can make money from their art, these and I'm thinking that they there's like students across the country, they can make money from their art, then they don't have to be working as a barista. They could be working on their art and generating their revenue there. Um, so that's sort of the the timeline of how this happened. And uh, at the time that I started doing this work, 2005-ish, um, there were like six programs that I could find um, that focused on arts business training in universities. And by the time I stepped down from my position at ASU, we had just done a, a study, like a landscape of uh, entrepreneurship education in the arts. There were well over 150 programs that were in some way or another approaching an entrepreneurial perspective on, on arts training. So there was a sea change some somewhat in reaction, I think to the, to the great recession, but we were doing it before then because it's, it's, a, I, I always felt it was a moral imperative in teaching artists. You can't just teach, you have to, you can't just teach artists to be artists. You have to also teach them how to make a living and a life. Totally right. Absolutely. Couldn't agree Absolutely. more. <laughs> And do you have any financial advice for young artists, young designers, young theater makers of any kind uh, moving forward? How can they actually make money from their art? Well, financial advice or life advice, I mean, they're connected, but sort of slightly different. Um, I, I would say that especially people who are trained in some way with a BFA or an MFA in whatever their field is, uh, should keep their eyes open to opportunities that they might not have learned about in school. 
Uh, and, and one of the core mindsets of entrepreneurship is opportunity recognition. So, so uh, if one finishes school with a very narrow view of what their art is, as I did, I mean, I had an MFA from NYU in the mid eighties when what you did was you got out of school and you worked on Broadway and that was a very narrowly defined and narrow um, market for the work of a lighting designer. Um, and so coming out of school, if regard, whether you're a lighting designer or a visual artist or a composer or dancer, and dancers are actually really good at this, um, in my experience is, is being really open to opportunities, um, of any kind to use your creative talents and creative expertise to make that living in a life. Mm. When you started out as a lighting designer, did you feel that you were good at business and money um, or or no? I don't think it was really on my radar that much Um, at the time. I was was very young when I finished my MFA and um, because for reasons I, I don't have to go into here. And I was just happy to get the next gig and the next gig and the next gig and string those gigs together to try to make enough money to pay my rent. Um, I worked as a temp in between because I had to pay that rent, right? So I, I, I don't think it was as much on my mind uh, at that time. And in fact, I know it wasn't because I remember consciously thinking as this entrepreneurship program was ramping up, you know, years later, 20 years later in 2000. So I finished NYU in 85. So two, 20 years later in 2005, thinking, oh, well, I've been an entrepreneur all along. I've had to market myself to producers and directors. I've had to put together a package of my work, you know, portfolio. I've had to manage my own freelance career. And I continued a freelance career while I was teaching up to that point. So um, it was making that connection, you know, years later. A lot of times I think young artists just look at what's right in front of them. Totally understandable because they have to like, like I did, they have to pay the rent, right? Um, and and taking that long view is a little harder, but having some um, uh, exposure to arts business while you're a student or while you're sort of in the early stages of your career, I think can be really helpful. So I didn't exactly answer your question about financial advice, right? I, I guess my bottom line financial advice does it's whether it's an artist or whether it's, you know, managing a, a, a budget of a huge organization is don't spend more than you make. You Good know, advice for, any, for anyone, <laughs> really. Right? Like just, <laughs> your expenses should not exceed your revenue. Mm. Um, now I, I will say about that, there are some economic models that indicate you, sh- you can actually borrow and go into debt when you're younger because your future lifetime earnings is going to be at a certain rate. But I, I, in general, I think to lead a, a, an unstressful life around money is just make sure you don't spend more than you make. Yeah. And if you spend, if you make more than you spend, then save some for later mm. because we know that there's going to be ups and downs in that artistic life. It's funny because I think that like a lot of people go um, out of university with a debt to start with, right? And then they and then they work through that and don't think in the in their twenties about you know putting stuff away or for retirement. And I don't think I really woke up till I was about twenty eight and I'd got rid of my university debt. And now I had some 
cash. I was like, well, now where does that go? Like, I can't just put it in the bank and have it not work for me, you know. And But it was still late. Like, I think, you know, if I had have had the foresight to put away some money and into some investments from the start, it, I'd be much better off to this day than, than I would have been when I actually started looking at that. But would you have been happier? So, you know, I, I, also, I graduated with some debt and I eventually paid it off. And then I had a little extra money and I thought, well, what? wow, I can like do something fun that has nothing to do with work. And at the time, I was before I had a family, I decided to get a pilot's license, which is like not an inexpensive hobby. Yeah. <laughs> but I decided to do that, you know, in the moment. Um, you know, I think that we're sort of incul- inculcated in the U.S., somewhat in, to be, and, and this might be different where you are, but to, to sort of live in this austerity mindset and, um, you know, it's not necessarily the healthiest way to live. I love that you said that actually, because I think a lot of the times people will say, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, but you know, you, you do have to have some fun at some point. So I love that even though you're going to advise us on your book, that you're still saying like, let's have some fun at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. If it's not fun, if you're not, in, and especially in the arts, you know, you're not going to make a ton of money in the arts, right? Or in academia, I'll have you know. Um, so if you're not having fun doing it, you know, find something else. Fun and getting personal satisfaction, right? So it's not just fun. It's also the personal satisfaction of being in a position of, of using your creativity to make an impact. Interrupting the show to call upon all art-loving financial aficionados and hear an ad for Patreon written by ChatGPT. Now get ready to tune in to a frequency that blends creativity and money management like never before. Welcome to the podcast, Artistic Finance, where we unravel the mysteries of the financial world and paint a vivid picture of prosperity for artists and creatives like you. As a patron of Artistic Finance, you'll gain exclusive access to a private podcast feed that takes you beyond the main stage where we unleash the full spectrum of financial knowledge tailored specifically for artists and creatives. But wait, there's more. We're not just about serious discussions and numbers. We're here to have fun and let you peek behind the curtain too. As a patron, you'll enjoy exclusive outtakes from our episodes where laughter, mishaps, and unexpected moments of brilliance abound. You'll be part of the Artistic Finance family, experiencing the full range of our creative process. We will be your trusty companions on the path to financial success. Now, by supporting us on Patreon, you'll play a starring role in the growth and development of Artistic Finance. Your contribution ensures we can continue to deliver top-notch content, inviting expert guests to share their knowledge, and providing you with the tools you need to unlock your financial potential as an artist. So if you're ready to turn up the volume on your financial prowess, gain access to exclusive outtakes that leave you in stitches, and equip yourself with an extra resource to conquer the financial stage, join us on Patreon today. Visit patreon.com slash artistic finance to become a patron and embark on this exciting journey with us. Thank you for your support, and together let's make financial harmony an art form. And now, back to the show. So your recent book, Creative Infrastructures, Artist Money and Entrepreneurial Action, what do you hope that people will get out of that book um, when they read it? That's a great question. Um, so it's a book that's, uh, it's not one thing, it's 10 separate essays. So each essay has a slightly different function, I guess. Uh, but I hope what 
artists will get out of it is a sense of hope that they can do this, right? That, that, because I, I'm not interviewing, you know, Damien Hurst and Jeff Koons who have these monster successes uh, commercially, but like the artists down the street and um, hopefully that's one thing is, oh, okay, there are artists in my neighborhood. There are artists, you know, I live in an apartment building, there are artists in my apartment building and they're making a living in life. So there's that piece. There's also, you know, there's one of the essays is about um, owning real estate and um, interviewing a couple of artists who are able to, and this is, this is a good kind of debt to have. So I, in my view, there's two good kinds of debt. Education, it's okay to graduate in debt. Don't let, the, don't let that stop you from getting a good education and, and real estate. So, you know, I, I, I talk with one artist who's, um, she's now uh, an older artist. She's in her 80, mid to late eighties. She's still making work, but she uh, bought property when she was young and is able to have a steady studio space, you know, that, she, that, that has been a, a rock for her you know, or somebody else in New York City who was able to um, get into a, a mixed-use housing development where you had to meet a, a MAC a, where there's a salary ceiling, right? And and they were able to hold on to that, and that's become a kind of anchor for their work that enabled them to do other kinds of work. So that's another kind of advice area. But some, some of the essays are a little more theoretical because I am, you know, at, at, after 30-some years in academia, I am an academic. So there's some theory um, in there as well. And some of the essays and some of, uh, and the last one is really just like a future thinking about what if, you know, what if we had a different kind of tax structure that rewarded creativity instead of wealth accretion, you know, what, what would that look like? Um, so there's, there's, uh, lots of different things in that, in the book. It's like I said, it's 10, 10 separate essays and you can, you can pick and choose and, and read the parts you want to read. Um, there's some case studies about, uh, there's a composer uh, in, in there and um, several interviews with visual artists, um, a lighting designer. My friend and colleague, Clifton Taylor, is a, one of the case studies in the book as well. Very nice. Sounds very interesting. Um, you, you describe yourself after 30 years in academia as an academic. What exactly was your path from being lighting designer to entrepreneur to academic and how much of that overlapped and when did you start calling yourself academic versus oh, designer? Um, oh, after I got my PhD, which was way okay. later. So I was okay. 51. Valid point, that. valid point. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a valid time to start saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had been in academia for a long time, but I was 51 when I got a PhD. Um, mm. So I always consider myself a lighting designer. I still consider myself a lighting designer because you never quite let go of that mindset. But there, uh, all of those phases overlapped. So you, you, you know, you said when exactly did this happen? And it's like, well, it's not. There aren't clear breaks really, except I, I mark in my head that 2008 was the last time I designed something. But I had been on a downward, tra- downward, downward trajectory. Sounds bad. I would, had been designing less and less on purpose and writing more and more. And I, I mean, I loved lighting design, but part of that was a personal choice. I was a mother with two young children and was traveling a lot and decided I didn't want to do that, that I wanted to make a different kind of choice and could still be really creative and exercise my brain 
without having to travel around the country to Lord theaters to design shows. So that was, that was a choice I made sort of around when my youngest was, I'm sorry, when my oldest was about one and a half, two years old. And then, you know, and that making that choice enabled me to have a second child, which was great. Um, so we, you know, we make those choices and I'm going to be blunt. I think women have to, are, have to make those choices with a little more distinction, perhaps, despite the many, many opportunities that I have that my mother's generation wouldn't have had. It's still some choices, you know, around family versus freelance life. But I was a freelance, I freelanced here in New York City after my MFA for a while. And I, so I was doing the thing, the narrow thing that my graduate study said I should be doing. I was an assistant designer on a couple of Broadway shows. And I was like, you know, this is not the life I want to have. It wasn't about the work. It was about the life. So we, we, that's, that's another thing about the book. It's about, you know, make, it's not just about making a living. It's also about making a life. So, you know, the life I wanted wasn't going to be doing that. I also thought, well, I've been doing this for several years. I think I have enough knowledge now to share it with other people. So I'm going to look at maybe teaching. And I applied for two two teaching positions only, one at University of California, San Diego, and one at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Both had fairly well-known lighting design programs at the time in the mid-80s. And uh, I, got, I was fortunate to get one of those two positions. Chris Perry, who's, uh, may he rest in peace, happened to get the position at San Diego at the time. So that was in 1988, I want to say. And, you know, I, at that time I thought I was a lighting designer who was teaching and I had a three-year probationary contract as a, you know, as an assistant professor. And I thought I'd come back to New York after three years. And 16 years later, I, I left Wisconsin for another academic institution. So, you know, things evolve and change. I think one of the things about, you asked me earlier about financial advice, Again, it's not financial advice, it's life advice, Is but it's related to that keeping your eyes open to opportunity and not having a, a mindset that's closed to changing and evolving over time. It was the right choice for me at that time, and then I made other choices that were right at the time. And we're, we're never just looking at what's right for me in my career, but it's also career and life. And I think acknowledging that is really important. Yeah, I think you've touched on something really significant there when you said that the work was still great, but it wasn't what you wanted for your life. There are, I think, a lot of people who struggle to find the difference between those two things. Um, I think that the pandemic, at least in my own experience and that of my peers, helped to separate the two a little bit more. But I wonder if you have any advice for folks who find that their work and life is so intertwined that they have trouble finding their own identity outside of their work and what it is that they actually want out of life. Do you have any advice for those people? Well, I'm not a therapist, um, so I, I'm not <laughs> sure that, that that I'm I'm able to give that kind of advice. But I actually think that separating them is not, for me, I'm not, so for, for me, separating them and creating a bright line and talking about balance is not healthy. I talk about it as symbiosis. And I have a, if you go back to my blog, creativeinfrastructure.org, thank you for allowing me to put that plug in. Um, if you, and you search symbiosis, I have one or more blog posts over the years. I mean, that blog was pretty active for about 10 years. 
there's a there is a, po- a couple of blog posts about this. You know, like you, you when you when you talk about work life balance, they're always separate. They're always dichotomous. They're always in in conflict with one another. But if you think about it as a symbiosis, then you you can find a healthy way to integrate the the two. And for some people living inside the work is the right thing to do. I, I mean, I see that with visual artists, especially, and, and having to have that kind of focus and that need to make their work, but that's right for them, you know? And I do also recommend, like I said, I'm not a therapist. If you're struggling with this, can't recommend that enough. You know, so there are professionals who can help sort, sort that out. Right. And, and help you manage around those distinctions between work and life. I really like the answer of the symbiosis because, like, we do spend a lot of hours, right? So it's not like we can do the eight-hour workday and clock off and go into <laughs> the home life. It's it's really all integrated. I'm, my children grew up in the circus, and I think they thought that uh, my off, all offices looked like a like a like a stage, but <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, I, I assume you don't mean the circus literally, although maybe you do. I, again, on my blog, I, I was when I was thinking about this you know, I was thinking there's, there's, I ran off and joined the circus. It's kind of what I think of as my career. It's like not what my siblings did. One is a lawyer and one's actually a psychotherapist. And, you know, it's like, I ran off and joined the circus because I went to see Pippin when I was 12 on Broadway. It was my first Broadway show. And I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) I have a similar story, Linda. So that's, that's how I ended up in the arts. And when I do say my kids grew up in the circus, I do mean literally. So, um, yeah, they they, they grew up seeing flying performers and crazy things happening. So, uh, they think my job's boring now. Um, the, uh, other question I wanted to ask you was, um, a lot of people in our industry um, have a lot of wonderful stories, a lot of experience and a lot of advice. And you've managed to go from the industry into a point where you've been able to write about uh, your work and, and advise people on that. What what was your path to, you know, were you always able to, you know, stream words together to create cohesive messages or is this something that's evolved over time to write? Because I think a lot of people would love to know how to go from where they are in the industry to be able to write about it. Um, It has evolved over time. Um, I didn't have a traditional undergraduate or graduate education. I have a BFA and an MFA from NYU. So I went to an arts conservatory, but I had a strong high school education where I was forced to write um, and going into academia, writing more was welcome. So, uh, and it was also something I could do while home with my young children. I didn't have to travel to write. Not everybody is a good writer and you have to have a story to tell and you, and, and you have to, one would have to accept co-authorship or strong editorship if they don't necessarily write well themselves, but there has to be a story there to tell, right? Uh, that's, that's part of it, you know, and my earliest published writing was like manuals for architectural lighting, you know, through the Illuminating Engineering Society. It was pretty dry stuff, you know, but that sort of trains you. And I did, I'm trying to think of what I was, so then writing about my lighting design process that was kind of 
something I had to do anyway, because I was teaching. So if I'm teaching, I'm writing notes and then, and then yeah, I put the notes together and I fill in some of the blanks and, oh, then you have lighting and the design idea, which is you know now in its third edition. And my second book, The Speed of Light, was kind of easy to write because it is an oral history. So the words are the words of other people. And I was kind of this meta editor um, and, and put the various excerpts of these interviews together to create a kind of story the writing and then writing a blog like that, you know, blogs were a thing as we know, like 15 years ago. And I started a blog. I think it was the last day of 2010. Um, and you get into a discipline of writing every day or every, you know, I did two or three posts a week for the first year and then it was one a week and then it's trailed off. And now it's, you know, like most blogs somewhat on hiatus. Um, but that, was a great way to learn to be a better writer. And you get feedback from, you know, the quote unquote market from the audience um, when you do the blog. So I, that's, I think that's how I grew into my writing life. And then of course, later on pursuing a PhD, I had to write a lot and I had to write a lot that was academic. So one of the challenges of, of being a writer is writing for the audience. And um, I was hoping creative infrastructures, from my perspective, creative infrastructures is written for a lay audience. Um, a layperson read the first essay and said, I can't read this. Now, the first essay is very academic. The rest of the book is not. So I wish this person who was going to be a reviewer could, could have gotten past that. But you, know, you have to write for different audiences. Did you start the blog on your own accord? Was that just for you to yeah, practice, get some messages out? Exactly. It was absolutely for that purpose. And also, I, I had been at ASU as the director of the school of theater and film. And I, I decided to step down and um, I was on sabbatical and I was like, wow, I'm on sabbatical. I'm working on some writing projects. I'm working on this PhD. I have these two small children at home. I'm not talking to any adults. So I need to, <laughs> I need to do some writing. That's a little short, you know, short form, short timeline where I can get some more immediate feedback uh, from adults. So that's, that's was part of the impetus for it. Um, and then it, it got some traction and a lot of what's in the book, the new book, Creative Infrastructures, is based on ideas that I worked out over the years on the blog. Uh, Kat, you got another question or should we move on to our final ones? I think we should move on. Wonderful. All right. So because we've already been talking for half an hour, that, that happened really quickly because right. you got some really interesting, uh, interesting points for us, Linda. So we always ask um, our, our podcast guests the same two last questions. So we're going to ask you this. This was the first one. What's your most favorite thing about your job or the industry? Well, my job now is provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at Baruch College. So my most favorite thing in this job is helping our students and our faculty su to succeed. That is my job. That's my personal mission as an academic leader and academic administrator. And when I can see that happening, that's my favorite thing. That's great. And if there's one thing that you could change about your job or the industry as a whole, what might it be? Well, when you say the industry, which industry are you referring to? I just want to make sure that I'm clear on that. Well, it could be either the wider entertainment industry or perhaps the world of academia. It's really up to you. Which one do you think has something worth changing? I'm in the change business. In other words, I'm in the evolution business, I would say. I'm helping a large organization to evolve and be its best self as an organization. Coming to one thing is a real challenge, and I'm going to leave it at that. 
<laughs> She's got all the challenges to change. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair it's enough. Amazing. Well, I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it this way. I am sometimes asked, "What does a provost do?" And my response now is, "Do you know the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once?" <laughs> when I heard that job title, that movie title, I thought, "Oh, that's my job." <laughs> all the things that's what I always say I do all the things exactly the things. so imagine being a st- it's like being a stage manager honestly yeah. it's, or it, it's it, it is it, in some ways it's very similar to that it's like being a stage manager the director is the president I'm the stage manager and I make all the things happen although I don't <laughs> I make I, I because there's you know 1500 people so there's 1500 people making all those things happen but you activate people to do the things that need to be done. <laughs> theoretically, theoretically, that is the job. <laughs> Everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and so where do people find your book, um, Linda? Yeah. So Creative Infrastructures, Artist Money and Entrepreneurial Action. Um, I, I would hope it's at a bookstore near you, but it's probably not. So in the United States, you can go to University of Chicago Press. Um, that's the U.S. distributor and Intellect Books is the publisher and the UK distributor Um, and your local bookstore can certainly order it uh, as well. Amazing. Linda, thank you so much time for for your time here on the Theatre Art Life podcast. I've really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you both so much. It was a delightful conversation. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day or your evening, depending on where you are. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are that Linda mentioned some artists don't like the word entrepreneur for personal reasons. Now, I'm that kind of person. There's so much toxic productivity culture associated with that word that I shy away from it. Yet, as Linda said, regardless of how you feel about it, it is what designers and artists do. Now, I looked up the Oxford Dictionary definition of entrepreneur, and it is a person who organizes and operates a business taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. Now, by golly, that is exactly what every entertainment freelancer is doing. So, yep, we are all entrepreneurs by default. Another takeaway I pulled from the conversation was when Linda said she's a lighting designer, even though she hasn't designed a show in 15 years. I absolutely love this because Linda is a lighting designer, they're an author, they're a provost, and they're an educator. Now, all of these things are true, and they can be pulled upon as needed. Now, what is great about this multi-hyphenate attitude toward career is that it's given Linda a lot of opportunities and collaborations that they wouldn't have had otherwise. They have creative versatility and autonomy in their career, so rather than tying themselves to one identity, they embrace all the identities that make them into an artistic entrepreneur. And my final takeaway is Linda's life and financial advice. Make sure your spending is less than your income. And if you can be consistent with that, make sure to save some extra for the times when the freelance career has one of its inevitable downtimes. And this reminds me that it's time to remind you that we're halfway through the year. Do you have a savings and investing goal for the year? 
And are you halfway to those goals? Now, I will admit that I'm playing a bit of catch up myself. I reached my goal for last year at the beginning of this year, but I haven't set aside my retirement funds for this year. I am a third of the way toward my goal, but I need to kick it up a notch to finish before the end of this year. Now, if you are saving for retirement, which if you're listening to this, I'm confident that you are, but are you utilizing the Roth option? Now, it's not right for everybody, but the Roth IRA is my favorite vehicle for retirement. It's the easiest to set up and it has great tax benefits for the future. If you're listening and you don't have a retirement account set up yet, please consider a Roth IRA, not a traditional, which would be okay too. They're both easy to set up and they take the same amount of time, except for the Roth, you just need to make sure to tick the box that says Roth option. Now, if you have access to a 401k, you can also set up a Roth 401k. If your plan is provided by your employer, ask them if they have a Roth option. Or if you have an individual 401k, if you're a freelancer, you can convert it to Roth or you can open up a Roth version. Now, once you have your account set up, make sure to automate monthly or weekly payments into your retirement account. Automate as much as possible so that you don't have to think about it. Now, I am saying one thing, but I myself don't have my automation set up quite right. I do have a little bit transfer every week into a different account, but I then have to go remember to put it in the retirement account and then invest it. Now, that was a holdover from 2020 and 2021 where I paused my retirement savings, but there's no reason why I shouldn't be re-automating. Okay, that's everything relating to finance for this episode. I'm now just going to chat a bit because I'm feeling like it. I'm a father now and maybe that's made me a little more talkative. I don't know. But I want to give you a recommendation for at-home entertainment. Now, it's completely free and completely random, but some people watch the news. Some people watch PBS. There's a lot of content out there. Nicole and I watch a lot of, how do we say this? things that are almost like watching paint dry. For example, the fireplace logs, and that's where somebody just sets a camera on a fireplace and we watch it burn from the beginning to the end. We have watched that for years. We love putting it on in the background. Now, pre-COVID, if we had a morning free, we would sit with our coffee and our breakfast and we would watch trains on YouTube. Not videos of trains, but somebody who would go put a camera in the front of a train So like if it were in Japan, it might go from Osaka to Kyoto, and you would just see the landscape, you would see the city. Now these trains could be commuter trains between cities, they could be long-haul trains across Canada, or they could be subways in New York. So if you wanted to follow the A train from start to finish, from Manhattan out to the beaches in Brooklyn, there's a video for that. If you want to watch the reverse route, there's a video for that. If you want to see it during rush hour, you can do that. If you want to see it at nighttime, you can do that. There's a lot of options. (laughs) But when we got bored of trains, we would put on a coffeehouse background. Now, usually those are virtual, so you just get a raining coffeehouse in Seattle, or you could get a winter cabin somewhere. Some would have music, and some would just have ambient noises of people sort of purchasing coffee and then entering and exiting the shop. So these are all things that we would just like to have the ambiance of in our apartment. Now, during COVID, we switched from trains and ambiance to cameras on taxis. So a taxi somewhere in Europe, we would just watch for a couple hours. 
We watched them in Las Vegas. We watched them in New York. Sometimes it was cameras mounted on mopeds in Libya. But anyway, it's a great way to people watch and also to see a city. And now that we're home with Theo, Nicole has gotten tired of watching lighting training videos. So we have switched to road trips. Now road trips are something that Nicole and I don't ever want to do, but we don't mind watching other people drive around Australia, Croatia, Namibia, and see what they do, where they camp. These are quite pleasant because we know that we're never going to take that road trip, but it's sort of fun to watch. And finally, recently when my parents visited to see the baby, we moved on to walking tours. Now, pre-COVID, this is something that we would do around the holidays because we love seeing holiday lights. Certain people on YouTube would just take a camera, go walk around New York City, and visit all the sites with holiday lights. And I know that sounds crazy that we didn't pick ourselves up off the couch and go look at these lights, but I tell you what, you can cover a lot more ground <laughs> in a lot easier way if you just watch somebody else do it on YouTube. But anyway, now we're just watching various walking tours of cities, it is literally someone with their phone camera and they just walk around for a couple hours. Now, some of the nicer ones will have captions that you can turn on and it will tell you sort of about the sites you're seeing, stuff like that. So for example, we have watched Amsterdam tours, Montreal, Hanoi, Hong Kong, Santorini. We've watched Cancun, both city and beach. And Italy, we've watched probably 10, more than 10 cities in Italy, Positano, Capri, Venice. And then another one that came up was a city called Verena, and that is on Lake Como. Now, why this is important, or at least was interesting to us, is that last year we visited Bellagio on Lake Como. So now to go into Lake Como, so Bellagio is at the center of the lake, and there's three peninsulas that sort of meet. And if you were to drive from one of these peninsulas to the other, it would take probably three hours. But you can also just take a ferry between the cities and it would take about 10, 15 minutes. Now, when we were there, we loved Bellagio and we decided we don't need to go over to Verena. We don't know, need to go over to Menaggio. But as we were taking walking tours, we randomly decided to take one of Verena. Now, we didn't even realize what we were doing, but we suddenly saw Bellagio in the background and we said, oh, this is one of those cities that we chose not to take the ferry over to. It reinforced the fact that we chose not to go over because at the time we said, well, if we go over there, it's just going to be another city in Italy. It'll just be like Bellagio and it's crowded at this time of year and etc. So on this walking tour, which happened to be roughly at the same time we were over there, that is exactly what we saw. And while we certainly enjoyed the walking tour, we're sort of glad we didn't pay for the boat fare over there and take the time, which would have been great, but we were having so much fun in Bellagio, we didn't need to. So why am I telling you all this? Because we have gotten so much enjoyment from watching these walking tours. Now granted, we have a baby that we're feeding, and we can't do anything else, so <laughs> we're stuck watching these. We're watching them more than we would before where we just have them on the background, which we still do. You know, it's something where the baby gets upset. We just walk away from it. We come back. Sure, we missed 10 minutes of the walking tour. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but I'm saying if there's a place you want to go, go watch a walking tour, especially because we've been to Venice. But watching the Venice walking tour was sort of crazy because it's like, wow, we've been there and this is exactly what it's like. Like these walking tours are exactly what you experience if you're there. 
yes, you can't stop and get gelato. You can't take photos, all that. But that's exactly what you do. You walk along, you people watch, you look at the architecture. It's really great. And another thing, like in Verena, if there's a city you missed or a day trip you didn't go, you know, you were over in Europe or you were down in Australia and you're like, well, we didn't make it out to Ayers Rock. But you know what you can do? You can go take a walking tour around Ayers Rock or the pyramids. We've done walking tours around the pyramids because, again, when you're on a trip, you know, you you can choose to be more relaxed and or you can choose to go crazy and try to see everything. Nicole and I always choose the more relaxed route, even when people think we're absolutely crazy. (laughs) But I'm telling you what, what we love about traveling is being relaxed. So if you miss something on a trip, go walk, watch the walking tour. All right, enough about that. I'm just telling you, we love it. So maybe you will too. Now, a note about next week's episode. This is another takeover and it is with Dennis Size of LDG. Now, that episode I'm warning you about because you're not going to hear my voice at all. Dennis did such an amazing job as host. He recorded the episode before we switched our theme music. So for the episode, I brought back our original intro music just because I thought it was fun. Now, he also mentions that he was a guest on episode 17.5 way back in the early days of artistic finance. And he said, I don't know why I was a 0.5. And the reason is, is because I was doing a series of episodes about Red Alert Restart that was lobbying Congress to extend the pandemic unemployment insurance. So I did a whole week of episodes, even though I already had episode 18 planned. So I did 17.12345. All right. And now I'm going to wrap this episode up with our new section called Dad Jokes. Now this week, they are focused on entrepreneurship, and they come from ChatGPT, which has a lot of work to do on its dad jokes. Now, I admit that these are not funny jokes, and they don't make sense, but I just have to let you know what ChatGPT thinks is funny. (laughs) All right, so here we go. What is a theater artist's favorite business strategy? To break a leg and maximize profits. I know, not good. (laughs) How did the theater artist and entrepreneur collaborate? They found the perfect balance between drama and business acumen. (laughs) All right, and my final dad joke, which I think is actually funny. You be the judge, but this one is actually funny. What's an entrepreneur's favorite Shakespearean play? Much Ado About Revenue. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance, where we interview successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the creative community. To access our show notes and resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.